Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome, everybody. Today, we have another special guest that in his 20s, he had already flipped over $50 million in real estate. He launched over 23 brands that were over seven figures, nine of those over eight figures. He's also well, the founder of one of the biggest man's grooming beard brands and the founder of the Online Seller Summit. Nate Lind is here with us today. How's it going, Nate? I'm good, Quinn. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to be a part of your show. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you here. I mean, I love everything that you do because it's so similar to what I do, although maybe the numbers may be slightly different. So in your 20s, were you flipping houses? Is that what you were doing? Yeah. So I got out of college and I was just working a, working a nine to five job. I was going to be driving down to the Federal Aviation Administration in Washington, D.C. I read this little book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it totally changed my life as quickly as I could. Tried to get myself out of having a day job and you know, was interested in real estate. I uh, actually went to a Cashflow 101 game, the very first game I went to. And at that game, I ended up finding a mentor who then later became my partner. And we ended up selling a whole bunch of real estate together. So that, this was in 2002 through 2008. I had a really good run there. I bought and, and resold 75 houses by myself pretty much in that time with a you know, business partner who was a money partner. And um, I had 70 wins two losses and three draws. So those three draws were lawsuits too. So <laughs> learned a little bit about that you know, litigation at a young age as well. It's unfortunate, but uh, America is highly litigious. Yes, of course. No, that is pretty incredible. 75. Yeah. So I, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, of course, but I was 40 when I read it. Yeah. I always knew about it. Took me until I was 40 to read it. And it was actually the audio version. I had owned four homes at the same time, and I lived in three of them. <laughs> so I was not doing a real estate investing. It was just kind of my own stuff. And since then, I got rid of three of those. So I just have one, and I don't even live in it. Yeah, so, so, it's, a, so it's a rental, and then you, you live in another place or rent another place? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I love that model. I mean, I don't own the house that I'm in right now either. Uh, you know, I don't... This whole like misconception about your house is your biggest asset. I like how Rich Dad Poor Dad, you know, how Robert Kiyosaki kind of like puts the spin on that. Economically, if it's better for you to buy than rent, buy an opposite rent. So it just depends on, on your situation. Every situation is unique. Absolutely. And you said you, you had a partner and dad that was the money partner. So you would yeah. come up with, at the time, was there the, the 5% mandatory down payment or was it you could start with zero? Oh, we were doing what's called subject to real estate purchasing. So we were buying the property subject to the existing financing that was already in place. Mm -hmm. So typically, these are people that were in some kind of a distressed situation. So death, divorce, downsize, disease, disability. Those are the things that were, that were causing some turmoil in their life. And they were up against some, some sort of a time crunch. They were you know, perhaps behind in their payments, you know, or there's a significant amount of work that needed to be done to their house, you know, or there was just a situation that, uh, you know, that was coming up for them that you know, they don't really have a whole lot of time or, or money to put into the house to get it you know, up to a um, sellable point that somebody else would acquire it and, uh, or, or buy it. And that's when you know, I would contact them and just uh, you know, share a little bit about 
you know, what I could do for them. You're always answering that, the, the number one question, what's in it for me, mm-hmm. who, whoever it is you're talking to. So you answer that question, what's in it for me. And that, that happens online. That happens on real estate. doesn't matter where it is. So I would honestly, I was, you know, knocking on people's doors and then immediately I would, I would explain to them, you know, hey, I'd heard about the house and uh, looking to see if I can help. And uh, it was really vague and it wasn't a yes or no, but it would pique their curiosity. And then that would start a conversation because I immediately, I'm not telling them, hi, my name is Nate Lind. They don't care about me. Yeah. They don't care that my name is Nate Lind. So I had to immediately answer what's in it for them. Yeah. So you would actually physically go knock on their doors. Yeah. I did that for years. I knocked on thousands of doors. Very good. And you said something there that's absolutely fantastic. And I knew it. I always knew it. I keep forgetting it. And it's first thing that everybody, doesn't matter who it is, that they think it's what's in it for me. So yeah, if you keep that in mind when you're talking to any potential client, that's going to change the, the way they see you. And right, that's just incredible. I see it all the time now. Like I, I've, I've gotten to be you know, fairly public you know, in terms of my personal brand over the last couple of years. And people will track me down and they'll, they'll send me a message and somebody will say, hi. <laughs> hi what? I'm getting hundreds of messages and you say hi. Nice. Yes. And even the, the good old wave thing on the Facebook Messenger and that's I, it. I almost immediately go to block. It, it's, it's such a waste of time. And this isn't just for me. This is for anybody, if, especially for someone, if you're an aspiring entrepreneur, if you're in a situation where you're aspiring to grow and you're wanting to connect with those that are more successful than yourself, what's in it for them? Why would they take the time out of the day to talk with you? Because they've got other stuff going on. They've got other demands. They've got other pressures. They've got other things that they're interested in. And you're coming out of the blue online to send them a single message that says hi or the little, little, handy, yeah. little handy shake. You really need to think about it a little bit more before you go approaching people because or most of them won't even respond to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most of the people do go to the immediate block. And I did that for the longest time. And because you know how it works, uh, as soon as you you are somewhat known within our niche. You get added often on Facebook. And I decided at one point, maybe instead of blocking, I'm going to try to help a couple of them. And I had a copy and paste answer, tell them, this is not how you approach somebody. And I would go and paste it. This is what you should do. Try to build a relationship. At least if you say hi, say hi, I am this and this, and I, maybe I can help you with something, right? Try to offer something. And I had that copy and paste it. And uh, at this point, I uh, just gave up. Quit doing it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just, there's just too many messages. It's too, it's, it's too easy for people to access directly. So I make it pretty clear you know, what I'm up to and what, and what I'm working on. And people that are in alignment with that, they bubble up from it. I'm a bit of a magnet for things that I'm, I'm seeking. So I don't really have to do a whole lot of outbound. Uh, I just make it known that what I'm up to and then other people, they show up. Yeah, this was in your 20s. So since then, you've launched over 23 brands that were that made over seven figures. Yes. Nine of those, eight. That's right. And then one of them was the world's biggest man's grooming beard brand. And for those that are listening to us and can't see, Nate has this fantastic beard. It's two-tone, uh, <laughs> really yep. nice. Were you the image of your company? Not the first one. It's funny because people, people have a lot of myths about brands and the average brand, nobody really even knows. It's just a product. It's just a transactional based product. And for the majority of the products that I sold, that's, that's what they were. You know, it was, I don't know, tuba chapstick, you know, and, and sold to somebody or, 
you know, a electronic gadget, you know, something like that, that, you know, goes to them. You know, this one does have a, a brand name on it, but many of them don't. They just, you know, they're just white label products or that sort of thing. And that's primarily where I started from. I was selling uh, mostly white label products in the beginning. And I didn't start to get to uh, custom products and, and formulating products. For, I've sold a lot of stuff in the health and beauty space. In the health and beauty space, you can the lowest barrier entry for that is private labeling or, or white labeling. You don't really drop ship uh, health and beauty products. That's not really a thing. Drop shipping is kind of more for like gadgets and apparel and that kind of stuff. So when I first got started, I got started in the lowest barrier of entry, and that was white labeling things. So these were products that already had, I mean, they were already created, but they didn't have any branding on them. They were like blank. So I would put on you know, my branding and my labeling and that sort of stuff so that it reflected our brand. And by doing so, you're still not really creating a brand like as people think about it. People think when they think brands, they think like 100-year-old brands like Coca-Cola, and Pepsi, mm-hmm. and, and then like our automotive brands like Ford and GM and like that sort of stuff. To build up those type of brands, well, number one, those brands are 100, you know, 100 years old or decades old, and they've also spent a tremendous amount of money building up the, the collateral of the brand. E-commerce companies that are trying to get you know, start up and, and trying to create brands, quite frankly, I, maybe one out of 1,000 or one out of 10,000 are actually going to build a brand. Most folks out there, uh, especially what's being taught, is the lowest barrier of entry is just you know, shipping products, building customers, and servicing customers, which isn't building brands. Um, and, and I would even you know, be critical of, of my own brand building, so to speak. It's a difficult task. You know, you're, you're creating you know, products that are you know, not... It's not like Teslas. They're not, you're not selling them for thousands of dollars and tens of thousands of dollars. Your goal is to get as many of them out the door as you can, especially if it's a, a grooming product. So for the first couple of, well, I'd say like the majority of them, there's probably only like two out of the 23, there's only two or three that we started to do some personal branding around. And um, so that's, that's been you know, my experience. And I did do some where we would have like a spokesperson or I would be the, the, the face of the brand, one, one of the Beard brands. It wasn't the first one we did. And Beard, Beard Czar was the first and it was the most successful, but it wasn't a brand where it was like a personality, a person behind it hmm. that came later and actually without near as much success. So... It's interesting that a lot of people they have this focus on you know brands being successful or brands being you know worth a lot of money. Well, oftentimes to get a brand off the ground, it takes a whole lot more money, it takes a lot more resources, and those are resources that you're diverting from the core of advertising and and service and and, and sales. So that's kind of been the experience of it. But you know through that, I got a number of different opportunities to to do some really cool branding activities. You know we got our brands. On TV, we did sponsorships. I was you know, sponsored, you know, one of the sponsors of the World Beard and Mustache Competition in um, 2017, or is it 18? You know, so we had you know stage time and that sort of stuff. And there was a lot of cool things that we did, you know, between you know just Facebook communities. We've done some brand building on Facebook communities and that sort of stuff as well. But it's uh, it's tremendously difficult, even for someone that sold as much as I have. It's still daunting. So people that are just getting started selling e-commerce products and you want to build a brand. The first thing you need to do is make money, like learn how to make money, provide a good value, and uh, save the brand building for later. Just start to build a viable company, and then you can start getting into building a brand. Um, if you're going to like kick off a brand to begin with, it's going to be really difficult. You need to have some sort of financing, some venture capital, or come from some money because it's it costs money. And if you want to get started just as a side hustle and build, you know, make a little bit of money on the on the side. 
by building brands, good luck. <laughs> I run a number of online communities and I've yet to see somebody do that successfully. Yeah, no, man, you said so many things that I like, I really agree with them. And one of them is the fact that a lot of people don't really know the real meaning of the word brand. I often see on those Facebook groups, somebody say, hey, uh, do you know somebody that can um, design my brand? What they mean is a logo. A logo is not your is not a brand, right? A logo is a logo. It's and yeah, it doesn't matter if you sell seven, eight figures. More than likely, you are an unknown brand. Uh, not too long ago, I interviewed the CFO of a one hundred billion dollar company. Uh, they make over one hundred billion per year, and a lot of people had never heard. Of the Tata Group, right? They uh, that's a twelve figure per year oh, yeah. brand, right? Uh, so that talks about what you were saying that it's not is not that easy, and you do need um, a lot of help and uh, experience and probably funding. Yeah, most people start in the wrong place too. Like they'll they'll start like with what you just said, like the visual assets of it. They'll start with like the logo. You know, they'll they'll talk a little bit about that. <laughs> And um, you know they'll 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 try to create what appeals to them instead of actually working on understanding like the persona or the avatar or the archetype. All three of those basically mean the same thing, but it's it's a group of your customers, your most desired customers. But in order to create that, you need to have customers. So most of the time, you need to get started in selling, and then you know whatever that experience starts with, you can then do some more digging into your actual customers and segment them into your, the most desirable audience or, or avatar. And I'll give you an example. So in, in the beard products, the men's grooming beard products, the very first brand that we built was Beard Czar. And we completely missed the mark in terms of branding for it because we were selling it mostly to, to blue-collar guys in Mississippi, Texas. There were some you know, kind of hipsters in California and Portland and you know, you know, Oregon and like that sort of stuff. But for the most part, the meat and potatoes of who was buying our product was, uh, was a blue collar worker, you mm-hmm. know, uh, middle country America, uh, that sort of stuff. And they couldn't even pronounce czar. They didn't even know what a czar was. So they would call in a customer service and they say, yeah, I want my, uh, you know, I'd like another order of beard Caesar. <laughs> and uh, so when we, would, when we would listen to our phone calls, like, man, our, our customers don't even know what a czar is. We totally screwed that up. But it didn't matter. I mean, it, it's you know the front end marketing was was strong enough that you know we were still getting it out there and people were making up their own words for it. And when we turned back around to it later and we were looking at okay, well, how can we, you know, wh- what are some ways that we can increase the customer lifetime value of our product? You know, that's a that's a big thing. It's like your average order value or your customer lifetime value. How can you increase that? Because if you increase that, you make more profit. You can also spend more money on advertising, and it's it's like the, the it's like the chicken and the egg. In order to get customers, you need to you need to be able to spend money to acquire them. In order to have money to spend money to acquire them, you need to have customers. So it's that, that chicken and the egg uh, scenario going on there. But that's when we learned that, number one, our, our branding was a total miss because people didn't know what a, what a, a Russian czar was. <laughs> and then number two, our audience was not affluent whatsoever. Um, in fact, many of them were, you know, they were, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, for them to spend any money on, on themselves, it usually was utilitarian in nature. So they like they needed gas in their truck, you know. They needed wheels on their truck to get to their welding job, you know that sort of stuff. 
so over time, as we, as we saw this phenomenon happening, we actually pivoted out of it. You know, we, we saw that, okay, well, this is an interesting, this is an interesting niche. This is an interesting product. But we started in late 2015, 2016. We, you know, we were selling you know, like gangbusters. And then mid-2017, we started to see a decline in our customer, uh, the customer lifetime value and the average order value of our, of our customers. And we were starting to think, okay, we need to have a pivot plan here because this wave is, is coming crashing down. And that's, that's when we actually went back to what we were selling before. We were selling women's hair products uh, because women, it's more natural for them to, to spend things on health and beauty because there's a variety of psychological things that are going on there about you know, women and, and their decisions you know, subconsciously and consciously about their health and their beauty. But that makes them a more desirable audience. So we ended up yeah. leveraging the, the products that we were building, but pivoting them you know, to, to sell to women, which is actually where we started from. We were selling women's hair products. Then we had this run on selling men's hair products specifically for beards. And then we, we reverted back to selling more women's hair products. And that's, that's what we did for, you know, for the length of that campaign in that company. Mm-hmm. And you probably even, even with the beard brand, probably still had a, a high percentage of, of your customer being female, right? The woman just buying it for their husband and boyfriend. Exactly. You know, we didn't focus on that as well as we should have. That's kind of a, a, it's a, a lesson learned. If I had it to do over again, I probably would have focused on more of the, the gifting nature of it because women don't want to be around guys with like burly, nasty, stinky beards. Like, you know, they, they want guys to take care of themselves. And um, it's funny because I saw this in an episode, or actually someone told me about it. I haven't seen it yet. But there's this episode of Mad Men. They're talking about this deodorant campaign from like, I don't know, back in the 40s or 50s. And somebody, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's, it's a great story anyways. Somebody in the marketing room was talking about, well, men don't buy deodorant for themselves. Women buy it for their boyfriends and husbands. And I was thinking to myself, oh, Eureka, that's exactly what goes on for like the next evolution of, of men's grooming. It's because women buy it for their men and tell them they need to use it. And eventually enough men are like, okay, yeah, Sally bought me this beard oil and I'm wearing the beard oil. And then Joe's to... You know, Joe is ribbing Jimmy's like, oh, she's got you buying this beard oil. It's all glistening. It smells like cedar oak and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, eventually the guys are all like, hey, this stuff's not bad. Like, hey, it actually feels good on my face and my skin and moisturizes my beard. And, and that's when things actually take off. But yeah, like for, for men's grooming, if I were to go back and retackle that again, I would definitely focus on, you know, targeting women. And, and the messaging should be about how they could, you know, how their boyfriend or husband, spouse, significant other, whatever, would benefit from this. And then let them do the sales, like let them buy it and let them, you know, you know, club, you know, the ogre yeah. over the back of the head and, and make them start putting it on. And then if it's enough to last for 21 days, now the habit has been formed. And from yes. now on, he will start buying it by himself as well. Exactly. So subscription right there, right? Yes. So Nate, where is, uh, what kind of platforms do you use to sell? Are you on Amazon, Shopify, just sales funnels? What do you do? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. So a lot, of, a lot of people, they think that it's one or the other. And uh, I've got my little handy whiteboard here. Some of your folks aren't going to see it, but do you produce the, uh, do you shoot, uh, shoot this out on, uh, on YouTube or anywhere else? Yes, I do. YouTube and iTunes video as well. Okay. So for anyone listening, if you're not able to see this, you need to go uh, watch Quinn on YouTube and iTunes video because I've got an important uh, graphic to show you. If you're just listening, uh, envision a, a triangle for a second. And at the base of the triangle, this is where most of the entries are in e-commerce. It's uh, Amazon, 
and Shopify. This, these are the easiest platforms to get started on. They're the most widely accessible. And that's just where people get started. One notch up from that are enterprise-level platforms. And one that I use for years, it's called Limelight CRM. And here you'll see WooCommerce. There's some others in here too. Then at the very top, usually when someone has some significant online success, they will build their own custom system. And this has been what I see over and over and over again, talking to people. I interview a lot of people. I've got a a very high-level mastermind where people in their seven figures and eight figures that are selling e-commerce, you know, join me for events. And just just seeing how the trend of that all works is, you know, Amazon and Shopify are kind of the starting point, and then people start to elevate up and, and more and more. Reason being is because on Shopify and Amazon, you have such a lack of control that if something happens, they shut you down. You know, if you've got a, if, if you run a product for just a little bit and you know the the products are are getting delayed. You know that really screws up your Amazon sales, and you know that can shut down your Shopify payments, and then just you know things go crazy. So when when people are graduating through the school system of e-commerce, this is the typical flow of it. Starting with Amazon, Shopify, elevating to a an enterprise level solution, WooCommerce, Limelight, something like that, and then eventually people build out their own systems because they need more control, even at that mm-hmm. point. So what I've done in the past is all except for the custom. I never got to the point where I built out a custom myself. And usually to do that, you're talking, you're at, a, I'd say somewhere between 20 to, to 20 million a year or more. That's kind of like the, the price point. So we'll put some dollars in this. So a custom, you're going to be selling somewhere between 20 mil or more a year before you get to that. And then with, uh, with one of these enterprise level systems, I start to see people switching over here sometime somewhere between one, one mil and 10 mil a year. Mm-hmm. And then people who are, getting, who are starting on Amazon and Shopify, it's up to somewhere between one and 10 mil a year. At the same time, though, people who are selling on these custom platforms, it behooves them to keep selling on Amazon. Amazon's a little bit of the um, uh, 800-pound gorilla because it, it's also the key thing behind Amazon's success is it's creating so much traffic. So think of Amazon for a second. Like it's like the sign spinners outside of a mall, a uh, shopping mall. So Amazon has like all these people, you know, spinning signs outside of the shopping mall. You know, come into the shopping mall. Come into the shopping mall. Amazon owns the shopping mall. Amazon owns all of the stores, and Amazon leases the store space to third-party resellers. And they've got their own department stores that are huge. And they've got their own people from department stores looking at all the third-party seller stores and saying, oh, that product's getting a lot of sales. Hey, Joe, from uh, department store Amazon, let's add that to our stock. And so they've got people walking around and looking and seeing what's selling really well. And then they're selling that themselves. So Amazon owns all of that, but they control the traffic. And when they control the traffic, they control everything. So you can still get a lot of sales off of Amazon. And in fact, probably 90 to 95% of most of my online sales we're not on Amazon. We're, we're on in my own platform using my own website. And these are the platforms where you're, you're creating uh, sales, like linear sales funnels, where it's a single product where they purchase. Think of it like, um, like going into McDonald's. You buy a Big Mac, then you get French fries, and then you get a drink and you upsize the drink. But it's, they are giving you one decision at a time. You're only making one decision at a time. And you can do massive, massive amounts of sales if you focus your, your e-commerce on that, as opposed to you know, people who get to a mill or more a year in Shopify, 
just using a store that has a whole bunch of different products, kudos to you, my friend, because you've done all the hard work. Now you get to really benefit from the explosiveness of your sales if you curate like the top three products on your store and create a story for why they relate so that every customer that comes to that funnel, you, you leave your Shopify store alone, but you create a funnel too. And that funnel then takes the customer on this journey of Big Mac, French fries, drink and over upsize. and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Ups, and then upsize it. That's, that's the key piece. So there's no right or wrong answer in here. It just depends on where you're at. Most people start with Amazon and Shopify. If you're only selling on Amazon, you're one Amazon decision away from you losing your entire business. Shopify, same thing. If something happens and Shopify shuts off an app that you're using or shuts off a payment gateway that you're using, boom, you're done. If PayPal or Stripe payments or Shopify payments, if they shut you down, boom, you're done. And it happens all the time. I'm in these groups where I'm watching people just like screaming and crying and begging. And you know, when basically they're losing their businesses left and right because they get to a point of success where the risk associated to their lack of performance is greater than the reward for them to stay on the platform. So the people in risk at Amazon and at Shopify, they don't care about the reward. They care about the risk. And the risk officers and the risk underwriters and the, and the people in the risk departments of those platforms shut people down without remorse all the time. It's critical that you have to have these other, these other platforms as you grow your business. You don't need to in the beginning, just stay on Amazon or stay on Shopify until you get to, I don't know, $600,000 a year in sales or something like that. And then once you start to get over half a million or $600,000 in sales, you really need to be focused on having an alternative and, and vice versa. I've seen some examples where people who are selling on, on a custom system, like a you know, million dollars a day, not doing any Amazon sales. And I was thinking to myself, holy cow, the first thing you need to do, get all your stuff on Amazon because people are looking anyways. Yeah. If you're doing any kind of sales outside of Amazon, people are also looking at buying your competitors' products on Amazon's, the ones with good reviews. So it's kind of like your dominant hand, but you need to, you still need to have your other hand as well. Like you mm-hmm. can't, like you don't want to show up to a, to a boxing contest, just, you know, one-armed. You're, you're not going to be able to block some of those punches coming at you. Absolutely. And Amazon does offer certain benefits when it comes to the traffic. For example, I do have brands on Shopify and Amazon as well as uh, WooCommerce. I have lots of WordPress sites and funnels, of course, with well-known softwares out there. The thing is, for example, outside of Amazon, I can get, let's round it up to a 2% conversion rate, for example. While on Amazon, certain products, I can get over 60%, which is for those of us that do outside of Amazon e-commerce, it's completely insane, 60% yeah. conversion rate. On Amazon, it's absolutely, it's so simple because you know that the person that goes to Amazon and types in Bluetooth speakers, they actually are looking to buy Bluetooth speakers. That's they the have, only reason why they're there. They have a buyer's intent before exactly. even coming to you. Yeah. So yeah, it does suck. We don't get the customer's email. We don't get... Uh, and I, like you said, I, I have five brands on Amazon. I also represent some brands that are not mine on Amazon. And often, because of anything... Like really anything, even a false positive that the algorithm triggered, a brand can be turned off that and then, you know, they they turn off your listing immediately. And then after that, you have to find the solution and the reason why that happened. And a lot of false positives that happened to me, uh, for example, uh, 
trademark infringement with a, a brand that was my own brand. And they figured that there was something that it was not even in the same category. And it was a brand new uh, product that was created like six months ago. And my five-year-old brand was uh, infringing on them. And we actually then found out that it wasn't. There was absolutely nothing wrong. And the only similarity was that both products were circular. That's it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. But in the meantime, the brand that was quote-unquote infringing was totally shut, up, shut down, right? It was mine, yes. And it was shut down for, I would say, a good three weeks yeah. for that. And right, we're talking about close to five figures per day of you know of those sales and so it was it's not even a very very profitable product but it's still you know it still bothers me because yeah i mean well even even if it wasn't a greatly profitable product you still you know you still depend on the revenue to to sell through the inventory right yeah. otherwise you're stuck holding the inventory and then you've got a, you've got inventory loss and still paying for uh storage fees for exactly. those products exactly cool so nate tell me something you you did um, so many so many products and and brands and of course everything went perfectly you never had any issues <laughs> no yeah we had so, all sorts of challenges tell me uh you had a failed partnership before which brand was this yeah so this was a company that had had many brands associated to it so yeah it's probably the most painful business failure that uh, that i had was not understanding that when you go into a partnership, at some point in time, that partnership will end, period. Mm -hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's not until death do we part. It's not for richer or for poor. It's not in sickness and in health. Business partnerships have a defined start and end. Yeah. And I didn't understand that. I was young. You know, I was well, younger. I don't think I would necessarily say that I was young. I've done this a couple of times. And uh, I've had business partnerships where you know, the split was amicable. And I've never had one where the split was not amicable but was also in a situation where this individual was doing things that were damaging reputationally, damaging litigiously, damaging monetarily. Like There were a number, of, a number of activities that were going on that I was unaware of, but because of my association to him, I'm also responsible for it. Of course. And so that's really what caused the, uh, the friction and then the, you know, the breakup. And you know, what I've learned since then, that it would be nice sometimes if those breakups just happen like overnight and they're done and over with. But when you've got joint assets, when you've got joint businesses, when, you're, when there's a lot of stuff there, it gets messy. And in that specific instance, probably one of the biggest things that I, that I learned is spend a little bit of time getting to know people before you form a partnership with them. Try you know, doing some, some mini projects, do a JV, do something together and, and try to assess their character before you really step into a long-term relationship. And regardless, have a defined exit plan. Like know who's walking away with what assets. Whoever put money in, they're first to get money back. If you're in a partnership where, where no one's putting money in, like how, like how do you divide all those responsibilities and, and the workload? And uh, there's a book that I was just I was just recommended to me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's on my to do list. It's called uh, Slicing the Pie. And it's basically the, this whole idea, and it's, it's kind of like a book that leads to a workbook, and then like you can go on their website and like I don't know, spend a little bit of money and, and then use their like their tool as well. But I think it would be worth doing because when you're when you're going into a partnership, there's a, there's so many different things you need to take into consideration. Um, there's you know who's putting money in, 
There's what work effort is being done by all the parties, uh, what assets are being built and generated from within the company. Is there anything that's that's a conflict of interest outside of the company? Is there anything that's adjacent, adjacent offers or, or other things that you know could be uh, you know considered part of it? So there's just a lot of nuances that go there. And it, it, I, I've had this conversation now. I've spoken pretty passionately about it because this, this one screwed me big time. With people that I bump into that, that are partners or have partnerships, mm-hmm. they don't even have an operating agreement. And if you have a partnership and you're listening to this and you don't have an operating agreement with your partner, you need to run, not walk to a good a partnership attorney and put together a partnership uh, agreement or, or an operating agreement. Shouldn't cost you much more than 1500 bucks, maybe $2,000. If you're doing any sales over $100,000 a year, you should absolutely do this. If you're doing less than, you know, I guess maybe you can try to like use some online tool yourself, but I don't really operate in the hundred thousand dollars or less a year. You know, I'm in this. I'm in this to to win it, and I'll, I swing big and had some huge hits, and I've I've struck out a whole bunch too. And yeah. that's just the game. Um, there's no harm, no foul in it. So yeah, that that would I'd say is probably one of the biggest ones. It's it's tough though when you're when you're in a situation that's outside, like and something happens that's outside of your control, and you're stuck left holding the bag. That one's brutal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's something that you said, Nate, that previously, and it was, I believe the life of an entrepreneur can be incredibly lonely, and the more successful you become, the less people really connect with you. Yeah. So yes. can you explain that, please? Sure. So one of the things that you'll find in your entrepreneurial journey is when you're surrounding yourself with paid staff, VAs, employees, contractors, whatever, the dynamic with them is never the same as it is with other entrepreneurs. Like you, you just, there's certain conversations you can't have with them. Like you can't have an open conversation about like, oh man, like, you know, Amazon shut our store down for, for five weeks and I'm having trouble making payroll with somebody on payroll. Can't mm-hmm. have that conversation with them. They freak out. And they go tell everybody else. Yeah, exactly. They go tell everybody, Nate can't make payroll. He can't. We got to get out of here. It's like, you know, you know, rats off of a uh, sinking ship. That's something you just can't really have that conversation with them. Also, like with your success, like you can't say, oh man, like we made a million bucks in cash. Oh, this is awesome. You can't have that with your employee because then the next thing they're going to say is, where's mine? Mm -hmm. That you didn't, you didn't do that. What about me? So it, it is very isolating being an entrepreneur. So in, in either case, like when you have great failures or great successes, you can't share with your employees, your staff, your contractors, your vendors. You can't. The only people that you can really share that success with is in masterminds with other entrepreneurs. And that, that's, that's really what, you know, understanding the dynamic of that, attending masterminds and now creating masterminds uh, for my own communities, that was a real huge turning point for me, really something that, that, that changed my life because the business of entrepreneurship is so isolating. Whew, it is a tough road to hoe all on your own. So sometimes you can share with the business partner and, you, and that's oftentimes where people will seek camaraderie is in business partnerships. But now, you know, added into this too, like for me, I've got this business partnership that's going, you know, it's going into shambles while we've got this highly successful business. And it's, it's basically being sabotaged. It's like, it's literally like, I, I felt like I was in this naval warship and we're like, <laughs> we're kicking ass. We're laying waste everything around us. And then I've got a partner in the engineering room. He's pulling, he's throwing wrenches into the engines, <laughs> blowing stuff up. And you're like, oh shit, what the hell? You're like, what are you doing? And it's a lot of people's own internal limitations, their own internal limiting beliefs and the lack of people's own self uh, personal development is, that's probably one of the most 
uh, most frequent obstacles I see to entrepreneurial success that comes out of, you know, especially having, you know, these great years and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you don't. Personal development is something that should be high on everybody's uh, radar. And if you're, if you're not actively reading to improve yourself or attending, attending classes of personal development workshops or communication courses, leadership courses, that sort of stuff. And especially as you're starting to get into the seven, eight, and nine figure range, that's going to limit your success. Yeah. It's frustrating, scary at the same time when, when the business is doing so well and the partnership isn't, right? It's, it must be such a weird feeling because it's somewhat there's success and failure mixed together. Yeah. Super frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, that's exactly right. I was watching something the other day and like the thought came to me is like, how can you have your biggest success and your biggest failure at the same time? <sighs> like, how does that make you feel? What do you do about that? And yeah. I was just thinking about that. And I was like, "Oh man, what a like what a mind trap!" Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you express joy and fear or anger at the, at the exact same time? Yeah, I guess you just have to decide for one, and uh, maybe go for joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of you know perceptual awareness. You know, being aware of your own failings, your own your own fears, your own limitations, and it's a rare breed of entrepreneurs or anyone. I actually, this isn't just entrepreneurs. It's a rare breed for anyone to, uh, to look at and, and to honestly ruminate and, and criticize their own, their own actions and hold themselves accountable uh, and responsible for you know, why they got to where they got themselves. And like having that kind of a mindset is super rare, probably you know, one out of 100 people. Everybody else, they, they will shift blame to other people, finger point. They will uh, d- you know, deny responsibility. And that makes you powerless, quite frankly, because you can't change anybody else around you. Yeah. The only person that you can change is yourself. And if you don't have a mindset and, and a heart that's programmed to seek that, then you're going to live a pretty, uh, pretty miserable life. Yeah, I believe so. And uh, I've been in uh, both sides of it. I also had a wrong mindset for for the longest time. You know, uh, I, I became a grown up in, in the late 30s, right towards the 40s, when you become a real grown up. And I, at one point, of course, I had the wrong mindset. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff just, just like that happened to me as well, which reminds me. Uh, for example, your definition of success, everybody has different ones, right? Uh, so right now, my, mine is, uh, you know, my family life and being able to be with them every single day and doing what I love because e-commerce is what I love. I started mine in 1997. Back then, you know, I was living in Europe and I was selling on eBay, eBay USA, because there was no eBay in the country I was living. For the longest time, I continued my e-commerce journey because I was stubborn. I was not successful. I was stubborn. And thank goodness that stubbornness was what kept me going because it doesn't matter if I started, what is that, 22 years ago doing e-commerce. Uh, there's always one point, and maybe, maybe you had the same thing or not. There's always one point that you think you're super successful financially, and then next you know, the next day, you're in a hole bigger than you think you can dig yourself out. That happened to me. Did you ever see anything similar? Absolutely. So in, in that same partnership that I was talking about, there was such a gross amount of debt that was incurred into a, a subsidiary. So it wasn't something I was responsible for. It was just a, it was a, it was a separate entity. 
that was kind of his hard charging focus. And, you know, his, his model to launch was raise a whole bunch of money and then, you know, go work on whatever it was. And for that, it was, it actually happened to be back into a real estate endeavor because we both come from a real estate background and it was brought to my attention that that was his experience. So, you know, his expertise. So, you know, him going off and doing that, I was focusing on the e-commerce business and he raised a bunch of money and he overpaid for a bunch of properties and he couldn't get them renovated, couldn't get them rehabbed, couldn't get them sold and lost them all. In that instance, I ended up taking that company into bankruptcy because there was no climbing out of that hole. It was the only moral choice because the alternative was to go raise more money into something that had already demonstrated a track record of failure. And then try to bring together a team and build, you know, expertise in the midst of this this crumbling business partnership and this this antagonistic relationship. You know, there's lawsuits back and forth. You know, it's just, you know, it's a nightmare. And you know, I didn't have the time or the expertise to to devote into that. Uh, the company didn't have the money to pay for anybody to do that. So you find yourself in a situation where there are no good choices. Mm-hmm. The only good choice is a bad choice. So it's which is the least bad choice. Yeah, no, I know exactly what it is. And you know what the good choice is, but the company doesn't have, doesn't have enough cash flow to do that good choice. Exactly. So you, you have to go with the second best, the, the thing that is possible, but you know it's not going to give you any results. It's just going to float you for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then like you, you start to ask yourself, okay, well, is floating this thing longer going to be better for everybody involved? Or is ripping the bandaid off the you know the better thing to do? You know, I think entrepreneurs take very personally failure and you know not wanting to you know admit failure. And that if if there is you know failure for a business unit or a business product or an ad set or you know or an Amazon listing or whatever it is that oh man I'm a failure too. Well, you you really have to have to pull your personal self out of it. You know, it's 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 it is good for us to be critical, you know, of ourselves and responsible for our own actions and that sort of stuff too. But there's there's also there's times come in businesses when you know there's things that are just outside of your control that have an impact, and you know your business goes away. And we're seeing that now, especially in e-commerce, we're seeing that now with all these gargantuan retail companies that are going away that have been around for a hundred years. And mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're watching this this evolution, the, you know, the dying of these dinosaurs, and this evolution, uh, you know, into e-commerce and I mean, yeah, some of these companies have been around for a long time. They're going out of business. They're going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not uncommon. In fact, uh, I think there was, you know, Jeff Bezos was quoted as saying, it's an eventuality that Amazon will fail. Yes, yeah. So, yes, I mean, even for him to say that, there will come a point in time where Amazon will fail. Now, it's their job to extend that time frame as long as they possibly can. Like that's what everybody in the companies, like that's, that's the sole mission is to, you know, is to continue to grow the company, increase, you know, the value to, uh, to counterparties, that sort of stuff. So they have a viable business model. But one day, Amazon may be gone. One day, Google could be gone. Facebook could be gone. You know, these titans that we're seeing now in this, you know, really interesting time where, you know, we've got these five major companies are kind of controlling so much of, uh, you know, the online space and then the, you know their their gross domestic product. Their their GDP is bigger than mm-hmm. almost every country in the world, except for like <laughs> China and the U.S. So it's uh, it's interesting. Like I, I've I've struggled a little bit with that too because of the the failure in that uh, in that business unit and that you know that partnership and then the collateral damage. One of the things that I'm in hindsight, you know, I've ruminated on too is is I wish I I wish I had been able to more quickly cut that business unit 
because the the amount of time and effort I spent trying to be like the good guy, trying to be the hero, yeah. was spent in efforts that weren't well, that weren't helpful for the other business units that that had potential for them. Mm-hmm. So, like that distraction, that lack of focus was that had a ripple effect that went on for a while too. That's uh, that was painful. And a personal life ripple effect as well. Did it, something like that happen to you? You know, it's interesting because in on the personal life, the I think probably the most strain in my relationship came from the greatest success in the business. Huh? And there's a phenomenon that happens. And I want to I want to answer a question you had just a little while ago too about like what's the definition of success. But I've seen it now in a couple of different layers for different people at different times in their entrepreneurial career. So I think I can actually address it for different people at different times of their life. But the biggest strain that uh, that I had in my uh, my relationships with my with my children and with my spouse was upon the eve of the most successful year that we had. And in 2016, we had uh, just a gargantuan year. This you know this whole beard phenomenon was going crazy. You know we had you know eight figure sales, and you know we had you know free cash flow, and and it was great. You know so we had a you know tumultuous start to our e-commerce career and then this was kind of like our our heyday our pinnacle mm-hmm. and um you know we were able to you know sock some cash away and then now you're like holy crap i got this huge tax bill you know so you're you're, you're dealing with the opposite ends of you know problems that come from the opposite ends of the spectrum you're thinking about tax strategies and you know different ways to reduce your income and that sort of stuff and that was where yeah, I think my relationship was having the biggest challenge because i i was going through a a personal transformation at the time and and we all do when we're all on our own hero's journey. Um, you know, we start off as a young Luke Skywalker and innocent. You know, we're still flying around in our, our land speeders and that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, we've got this conflict. The Empire shows up at our doorstep, and um, some tragedy. You know, something happens. You know, like our Uncle Ben and and uh, Aunt Peru get killed, and that sets us off into our journey. At each layer of this hero's journey, and it, it is a life phenomenon. It's not just something we watch on TV. There's a reason, or, or in the movies, there's a reason why we're so drawn to Hollywood films. It's because they have they have encapsulated the metaphor of life so perfectly that we're drawn to it in such a massive way. In in this case, you know, I had had you know this this great success, and it left this it left this like void in me as well. That you know something that I was. You know, I was, you know, seeking and it was, you know, this thirst to conquer something else. Like, okay, I conquered this. I want to conquer something else. And so it was putting me in this position where I was, I was just like grueling, spending time doing more work, not spending time with my family, not spending time with my children, not spending time with my spouse. And at the end of 2016, my wife made this this post on Facebook and uh, it said, you know, great relationship advice for anybody. Spend more time with your significant other than you do looking at your phone. I've commented on this a couple of times in presentations, and it's not necessarily a great relationship advice for anyone. It's really great relationship advice for Nate. And uh, the lesson that I needed to take away from that, um, and there's some big ones that I took away immediately, is you know when I'm spending time with my uh, with with my partners to put my phone away and you know turn it on vibrate or just leave it in the car. If we go out to dinner, just leave it in the car. Go have dinner. And then afterwards, you know, when you get home, you can check into stuff. And it's, it's really tough for e-commerce entrepreneurs because we're selling 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if something happens while you're having dinner that costs you a couple thousand dollars, like you rationalized yourself. It was like, well, sweetie, I'm, st- I'm trying to stay checked in because I don't want us to lose any money. At some point in time, you just have to kind of draw that line and, and set yourself, you know, kind of a, t- a timer that you're diligently spending time with your family 
and um, and with friends and and in that that social life too. Otherwise, you're you know you you can be that stereotypical entrepreneur that's been through multiple marriages and you know estranged from family and that sort of stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I've read a number of reports about this, and I've heard a number of interviews. And and for what I've seen for myself, when we're on our deathbed, we're not going to be regretting our businesses that succeeded or failed. What we will be regretting is the depth of our relationships with our friends and our family. And that was really poignant for me. There's actually a Harvard study that talks about this. It's like the this, this study that's gone on for like 80 years. And they've tracked these Harvard graduates from like 1913 and, their, and then their, their children over the years and then their children over the years. And the whole idea behind it was what makes humans happy. Humans are happy because of their relationships, not because the amount of money that's in their bank account or, yeah. or the, uh, you know, the amount of cars in their garage. But as entrepreneurs, we seek... Uh, financial freedom and financial safety through through the everlasting goal of of, of financial uh, reward, which is very materialistic. So, from a success perspective, like you, Quinn, I see at this stage, having gone through massive successes and massive failures, I've made and lost millions twice, and in those modes where I have been the happiest is when I have just consciously spent more time with the relationships that are meaningful for me. And that's what inspires me so much now to have built one of the most exclusive masterminds for e-commerce entrepreneurs because the relationships that are formed in those are so valuable, so tight. People make lifelong friends uh, from the events that I do. And that to me is the ultimate pinnacle of what I can do to take all of my learning lessons and all of my expertise and it's not the Nate Guru show. Like I'm not the guy in there that's sharing like, hey, this is, here's this Facebook strategy or here's this Amazon strategy. I don't do that. I'm just the catalyst and the magnet to bring in other people that are, that are highly successful. And then I create an environment by which people feel comfortable letting their guard down and, and sharing you know, the good and the bad. Because it's really by sharing some of the challenges and our frustrations and our vulnerability that you start to build deep rapport with other people. When you're constantly just you know thumping your chest about all your successes in that bragging manner, you you do the opposite. You push people away. Yeah. So sharing my vulnerability is what draws people together. So now I I feel like you know this is the opportunity for the most for the most happiness and the most fulfillment in my own, in my own you know personal and business life because I've I've had this realization I've, I've come to understand this about you know about me and myself and I can take everything that I've done in the past. To proceed to build, you know, the most um, the most connecting, resourceful, camaraderie-based mastermind for e-commerce entrepreneurs in the world. Fantastic! You know, you were talking about how uh, we're during dinner we check our phones because we gotta always keep refreshing to see. Look, I made more sales, or what is going wrong? And I did that for the longest time too, right? And I would spend lots of family time. But it wasn't pure family time. I was just physically there with them. I was thinking of other things and I was refreshing the Amazon app and going to Shopify and check, you know, to see what the sales were and what issues were coming up. And unfortunately, I was forced to be removed out of my business because of my, my father's death. During that time, I, I really had to go. My connection was limited. My, uh, you know, the internet and all that stuff, and I, I just had to actually go and, and be with family in, in in Europe. And during that time, you know what happened wrong with my online businesses? Nothing. 
nothing wrong happened, right? I have uh, staff took care of it and I only have two. And they, anything, anything that I could have done, they did. They took care of it. And when I was there, unfortunately, uh, thinking of who I lost, I was also thinking of all the time I was losing daily while being right next to my kids and actually being on the phone. So that ended when now when I spend time with them, it's just pure time with them, right? And enjoying, enjoying that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how we go through these transformations and I've had the chance to to meet with, hang around and be with uh, millionaire entrepreneurs in their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, and their 50s. And everyone has a different model for what's successful for them. A teenager and, uh, and 20-somethings that are, are you know, millionaires or aspiring millionaires have complete disregard for, for relationships and for family because mm-hmm. they, they don't have any. At this point, like they're, they've just gotten out from underneath the roof of their parents They've got almost no awareness of anything other than themselves and that nothing right or wrong. It's just that's where we are as a human race this day and age in our teens and our 20s is you're, you don't have any responsibilities. A lot of those guys are, you know, they're making that kind of money. They're, you know, they're traveling and, and maybe not, you know, using their money to the smartest, <laughs> to this, in the smartest pursuits and endeavors. And, um, you know, they're, they're still immature. There's something too about how society has changed so much in the last 200 years that we grew up a lot faster when we were working on farms and working in pastures and prairies and that kind of stuff 200 years ago. And now we are so insulated from, you know, from catastrophe or just from raw, uh, you know, human life, like what, you know, what we experienced as hardship 200 years ago. So you put in a combination with 20 something, you know, making millions of dollars from an e-commerce business. It's actually quite difficult to, uh, you know, for them to relate and for them to build connections with one another because they haven't really spent a whole lot of time learning what being a responsible human is and being a caring human is and trying to form lasting relationships with others. It's, it's very much a selfish time. And then when that same individual, and, and I'm speaking from experience because this was me in my 20s, super selfish. I was making gobs of money you know, selling real estate. I had paid off $80,000 worth of student loans before the time I was 23. I had a half a million dollar house by the time I was 24. I've always been somewhat modest when it comes to depreciating assets. So I don't like spending money on like ex- expensive cars because they depreciate. But I was well to do. I was, a, I was very affluent as a, as a 22, 23, 25 year old. And, and in some cases, I look back at some of the other 20 somethings I know that have, that have made tens of millions of dollars. And I, like, I, I can't even compare to that. But in both of those instances, you know, I was super selfish. And you know, I, was, I, I cared about me and I cared about what I wanted. And then when you add a relationship into the mix, then that's that's one more you know person at the dinner table, so to speak, and you and you 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 have to consider them, or they will leave. That's just what will happen, or you will leave, and you'll make up some you know baloney reason about it, like you know she snores, or you know whatever you know she she didn't immediately brush her teeth after lunch, you know, or you know something like that, you know. But then you you take fast forward another five or ten years, and you add children to the mix. Well, children are completely dependent on you. Like they, they know nothing. You know, they, they only know what you teach them or what the world teaches them in your absence. And um, that was something that was real profound for me. And I had a terrible relationship with my children, especially my, my oldest son uh, when he was first born, because I, I felt like an immediate failure because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle you know, being a new father. 
and I don't like surrounding myself with just like failure after failure after failure, like especially when there's something else that I'm really good at, you know, so I would be drawn to things that I'm good at. And then I would, I would tend to push myself away from things that I'm not good at. And then, I, you know, fast forward, you know, five or six, you know, like five or six years, and I've got a relationship with my oldest son, who's, he literally tells his mom, my wife, at this, this one point, it's like, I don't want to go see daddy, because he's just going to tell me to go to my room. Oh, man. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. So it was, it was after that, I, I intentionally took a self-development course that I had to fly to a different state one weekend a month to just immerse myself in how to solve, resolve, po- you know, positively impact the relationship with my children and, and my family. Mm-hmm. And it sounds silly because you're like, Nate, what, wait a second, you're, you're leaving your family to go learn. <laughs> but you know, just from a, a modality perspective, I'm, I'm very kinesthetic, uh, very, very visual, and, and then not as much auditory. So I knew I needed to get myself into a situation where it's not just reading like a self-help book and then like trying to put that into, like trying to implement that. The, you know, I think there's a reason why academia is focused around, you know, classroom and class time is because having like physically being somewhere, listening to instructors, listening to people and, and, and teachers and, and stuff, and then also being able to, to hear, you know, so you, you've got everything. You can feel, hear, and see. It's all, it's all right there. I had to do that because I knew this was going to be such a profound impact for me that that's what it was going to take for me to really learn the material. And I think that applies for a lot of people that are, are building their businesses. You know, many times they'll, they'll take a course or they'll read a book or you know, they'll watch some YouTube videos or that sort of stuff. Well, that's good to start, but you're not going to get from that the same thing you would by going to a physical event, you know, a, a conference, a, a mastermind, a class or a course or that sort of stuff. And you're not going to get the connections and the relationships with the other attendees, the speakers, the teachers, etc. If you're just doing it online too, or if you're just reading a book. So I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, physical events, and and especially because there's such a lack of good ones in the e-commerce space. I you know pride myself at having done some of the best ones, and I just have a passion for doing that. So and I always get so much out of it. Like there there's just so much good that comes from it in so many ways. That uh, I just can't help but wanting to do it, and you know. So back to um, you know, back to my children. Going through that that course, it absolutely revolutionized, you know, and completely changed, you know, how how I would react to them. And being humble enough to recognize my failures were not really failures; they were just a lack of knowledge. And and giving myself some tools, and, and also giving myself some freedom to make mistakes, and to not so highly criticize myself to to the point at which where I wanted to remove myself from the situation because I felt like I was going to keep making mistakes. I actually, was, there was a point in time where I thought to myself, it's like, I'm doing more damage by being around them than by, than by being with them. Oh man. How bad is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that must be just a terrible, terrible feeling. And it's not true. It, it wasn't true. Like I was, uh, there wasn't anything that I was doing that was, that was bad for them other than not by being there, other than by not being there. Mm-hmm. That's almost like the imposter syndrome, but at home. Mm-hmm. So is that why you started the ad sum is because you know that in-person events is the best thing where you can have not only the five senses, but besides that, the six, which is the connections. Absolutely. It, it really is. So I, I, I found that, you know, for me having, you know, live, live events, facilitating live events, and they've, I started with a small mastermind, like 35 people flew out to, uh, to my very first event from around the world. And then that grew and turned into a trade show called Add Some, And then, you know, that's kind of morphed a little bit. Our, our next event is a, is a cruise 
Um, it's very family friendly, very spouse friendly, because it's all of this has just been in parallel with my own transition as a human being, and and my own transformation as an entrepreneur. And um, you know, as I've as I've grown, I've just been honest about you know what the trajectory, like where I am, and what the and what my trajectory is. And then I've just uh, you know kind of staged a rally call to people around me. So. If there's you know other entrepreneurs that you know have relationships and and have families and that sort of stuff, especially if they're involved in e-commerce, you know particularly, then you know we're we're doing this cruise May fourth through eleventh out of Miami, and it's uh it's, this is my, you know that next evolution. This yeah. is a mastermind on the cruise, so we've got two days of masterminding. We've got four days of sun and fun, and uh, it's a it's a seven day uh, cruise from the from a Saturday to a Saturday, and you know people have the opportunity to hang out with their family. They have an opportunity to hang out with other e commerce entrepreneurs, and you know through that they can they can connect with you know so many people on so many different ways. I know people are going to walk away with it with with brand new friendships that last forever because I, I I just get those testimonials all the time. People tell me that Nate, I met this person at your event, and I go on vacations with them, and. You know, we're business partners together now, or you know, we're doing these projects together, and and that sort of stuff. So it's, I, I know it's it's silly because you you don't really see that like on a sales page. Like yeah, that's never really like you'll get you know lifelong friends. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's not really like something that you know people will immediately like jump onto. But uh, it's true, and actually, it's probably the most uh, impactful thing that you can have from going to those type of events because those connections are worth so much more than just a you know, a, a book that you read that gives you, you know, five or six new ways of thinking or, or two or three new strategies for employing, you know, XYZ product listing or that sort of stuff. Yeah. Human connection is still number one. They go knocking your door. Hey, uh, I want to buy your house. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, still number one. Yep. All right, Nate, we're coming up on time here. I want to re- be respectful of your time. And I know it's very valuable to you. Let everybody know where we can find you, where we can know more about the AdSum and all of that. Yeah. So, the, so AdSum's, you know, it's, it's had a beautiful life and, and death. It's uh, AdSum is done. Um, it was just an event for three years that we did for e-commerce entrepreneurs. Uh, the next event uh, under the umbrella of Nate is the Sellers Cruise. So you can go to the sellerscruise.com. It's open to anybody. Uh, it's, you know, for as- aspiring people to get to seven figures, people who already are seven figures. But uh, you know, either way, it's uh, it's a very it's the most affordable event I've ever done. It's only eleven hundred dollars per person for uh, for a cabin. There's dual uh, two occupancy needed. Includes all your food, all your drink, so you can you can ham it up. Bring your spouse. You know, show him or her how much you love them by bringing them to a uh, an industry event and learn at the same time. Let them uh, talk with other spouses so they can kind of you know they, they can talk about well Jason does this and well George does that and. Oh, it just it just must be normal. Okay, well, we'll get over it. You know that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's uh, that's what we've got going on. So again, it's sellerscruise.com. Uh, anyone that's selling physical products online is welcome. Two days of masterminding, which normally is like five thousand dollars, I charge for. That's all included. Uh, again, this is just the most inclusive event I've ever made available to the public before. So that's the best place that you can find me because I'll I have a whole week basically to hang out with uh, with with my inner circle and. We'll have a couple hundred people on it. It's just going to be a fun time. So it's not going to be huge. And uh, there'll be a lot of great connections being made there. And you said that's only $1,100, everything included. Everything included. So you need to have two people in a cabin. So it would be like $2,200 if uh, you and a spouse came. 
your food is all included. So like every meal is included, all the alcohol and drinks, that's all included. So it's, it's an all-inclusive uh, on a boat. And it's a, it's a two-year-old Italian cruise ship featured in many, on many YouTube uh, videos as being in the top 20 most insane cruise ships in the world. It's called the MSC Seaside. It's leaving out of Miami, Florida, Saturday morning on May the 4th, and then returning Saturday morning, May the 11th. And we're going to stop in Jamaica, uh, Grand Cayman, Cozumel, and then Nassau. And we'll have a couple of days where we're just on the boat. And those days that we're just on the boat, the, the boat's giving us access to some of the facilities that we can, we can all group up and, and do a mastermind together. So that's um, two days of mastermind, four days of sun and fun. And, uh, and then we get back to our, uh, our daily grind. That is really, really incredible. Nate, thank you so much for being here. Love the, the golden gems that you dropped here. And I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. No problem. Have a good one.